But we are in um, part two of this small series, Why Bother with the Bible? Why bother with the Bible? Uh, why bring out the book? Why is it so important? Why should we all have, possess the Bible, read the Bible, preach from the Bible, study from the Bible, apply the Bible? What's the big deal with the Bible? The B-I-B-L-E, right? Um, part one of this series was inspiration. Inspiration. And uh, yet last week's message is posted online as well as with my notes. Um, studying inspiration. And uh, as you look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, why don't we go ahead and just look at verse 16. Pens are coming around as well. Where it says in verse 16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So as we go through this text, first of all, we're looking at the what. What is the Bible? Okay. Uh, where did it come from? Who wrote it? Uh, what's so important about it? And so uh, right now we're looking at that. We're looking at that it came through the process of inspiration. Okay. That was mostly last week. And then as probably the next week or two goes on, we're going to look at um, what do we do with that, okay? And so we're going to look at the profitability of the scriptures. As the rest of the verse goes into, we'll pull that apart in the week to come. Now today, last week, today, possibly next week, it's really unique. If you come to Calvary Chapel, the reason it's unique is because it's going to be like Bible college today, okay? Last week was like Bible college. Today is like Bible college. Next week, probably going to get into some deep Bible college-y stuff, okay? Uh, so you're getting information, okay? It's not so much inspiration, all right? It's not so much, uh, you know, preaching per se. Um, but it's kind of this, you know, it's interesting. When you look at the Bible, you've got teaching and the giving of the knowledge. Uh, you've got preaching, which is the heralding of the truth and the bringing by the Holy Spirit of the Word of God. He brings the Word to bear upon our hearts and convicts us of our sin, of God's righteousness and the judgment to come. He moves us to repentance and causes us to walk in Him. That's just some of the benefits of preaching. And then it's interesting also in the Scripture, you have this word that's teaching, preaching together. And that's a little bit what we're getting these weeks. There's a little bit of teaching, preaching information, but also trusting the Holy Spirit's going to bring it to bear on our hearts and conform us into the image of Christ. So last week we looked at inspiration. All the scripture is inspired by God. And we looked at that that means two Greek words make up the word inspiration, theonoustos, which means God breathed, okay? All scripture is God breathed. And so when we speak of inspiration, we're not talking about a musician that was inspired to write, you know, a song or a, or a painter that was inspired to paint a painting. We're talking about something a few levels deeper. We're talking about God actually breathing out something, okay? Second uh, Peter chapter 1, verses 19 through 21 were also key last week, where the word holy men of God were moved by the Holy Spirit as they wrote, okay? They were carried along, we looked at, as they wrote the scriptures, okay? 
And uh, it's a deep study. I mean, y'all had 10 pages in your hands last week. I can't get into it all. So those of you that are new this week, just know you're hopping into it midstream. I'm going to try to help you understand it the best that I can. But it's exciting. Why is this exciting? Because we are finding out where Christianity came from, all right? What the foundation is of Christianity. How do we know it can be believed? Uh, what, what do we get when we have the Bible? Uh, what happens to us when we read the Bible? And, uh, and it's really, we're looking at some foundational stuff of the Christian faith, okay? In the Bible, God was and is speaking to us, okay? So whenever we read verses today, God's speaking to us, all right? It's exciting. When we speak of inspiration, it's interesting. The Latin Vulgate translates it divinitus inspirata, all right? Divinely inspired, all right? The Word of God, the Bible, the Scriptures, they are inspired words of God, and they are independent from you, okay? What you're holding in your hand, if you've got a Bible today, is inspired regardless of how you feel about them. If it's a Monday morning, if you've got a headache, you know, if your vision's a little blurry that day, if it seems like it's going on a little too much in genealogy, doesn't matter what you think, all right? It's inspired independent of you. It's inspired independent regardless of how you encounter it. You're not to just come to it in some sort of existential way. And the Bible doesn't just become something to you when you read it or if you read it. Okay, It always is something. It always is the Word of God. And so when we come to the Bible, we say, listen to the Word of God. Not listen for the Word of God. Because as you read it, God is speaking. Now, as we study last week, inspiration, there are implications of inspiration. If the Bible was breathed out from God and holy men of God wrote as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, what are the implications of that? And what we're going to look at this week, and we'll get into notes in just a second. If you're like, where is he on my notebook here? Uh, just hold on a sec. I'll let you know, okay? One of the big implications of all of this is what we call infallibility, okay? Infallibility or inerrancy, okay? And we'll talk about what that means in just a second. But I was reminded, like, in bed yesterday, I think, as I was waking up and thinking about this morning, I was reminded of why this is so important, why this is relevant. When I was a freshman in high school, it was the time in my life that God made my faith very personal. It, it went from beyond riding my parents' coattails and their Christianity to, Rory, rubber meets the road, man. It's time for you to decide this day whom you will follow, okay? And the Holy Spirit came upon me in a powerful way. I, you know, I was raised in the church, and man, when it came to Sundays, it was like, what else could I do today? Because everything else sounds better than going to church, you know. Uh, or my mom, you know, kind of hammering me like, did you read your Bible today? Did you read your Bible today? And it's like, wah, wah, you know, like, 
There's a lot of other things I'd rather do, okay? And yet, when I was 14 years old, going on 15, the Holy Spirit came into my life and moved in my life in such a way that I was captured by him. I mean, my mind, my heart, just I was just passionate about Jesus. And it happened when I got together with other teenagers who were also passionate about Jesus. We just got together, we went to a camp and set aside some time for Jesus, and he met us and changed us. And I was never the same again. So I went home from this youth camp, 14 going on 15, a different guy. No longer as super selfish, still selfish, but not as super selfish, serving in my home, uh, wanting to read with my family, read the Bible with my family, wanting to worship, wanting to read the Bible by myself, uh, wanting to tell others about Jesus and open up my mouth so that they can know this awesome Jesus that I have encountered or who has encountered me. And as I went to school that year, I went with about 30 other high schoolers who had had this same experience that summer with Jesus. And we just went into this high school of about 1,600 students and started preaching the gospel wherever we were at. We had a Bible study in school. It was in an open area. Kids are coming through by the hundreds from to and from lunch, and they would stop and listen to the preaching going on by high schoolers, and they would raise their hand in front of all their friends and say, I'm a sinner. I need Jesus. I want to be saved. And kids were getting saved. We were standing up in in lunch areas, up on tables, and preaching the gospel. We would go to our class, and we would preach the gospel in, in class. In my biology class, with an atheist evolution teacher, I'd begin preaching the gospel. In my math class, my math teacher said, you know what, he was a Christian, and he said, Rory, you can talk about Jesus as much as you want. Just get your work done, and then go for it, you know? I'd get my work done, I'd go for it. Now, there was a guy that would sit behind me in this class, and uh, he was a nice guy, he was uh, a little silly sometimes. I remember him taking a thumbtack and taping it to my chair, you know, so that when I'd come in and sit down one day, I'd sit on I caught him. Didn't happen, but, you know. And, uh, and I would sit and I would reason with him about the scriptures and about Jesus. And he was raised Greek, Greek Orthodox. So he would travel to Portland, you know, every week to go to these um, very liturgical Orthodox services. And to him, there had not been much life in that. And I remember week after week sharing the gospel, sharing the gospel with him. And he ended up professing a faith in Jesus during that time and coming to the youth group. And as we graduated high school, he went on to go to the University of Oregon and to go to the Calvary Chapel there in that area in Eugene. And I was pretty excited about that, you know, like score, a, a new brother, you know, someone who's going off to college and, and declaring Christ. The problem is, is that at the Calvary Chapel where he was going, there was a pastor that was beginning to buy into the lies on the internet that the Bible was full of errors and could not be trusted. And so it was interesting because I didn't know this was happening. And, and uh, as I was in college, and one of my greatest mentors and best friends was Chris Cross, who was an Oregon State University wide receiver for the Beavs back in the 90s. Uh, you know, just one of my great mentors and friends. And we went down to have lunch at Red Robin with this Calvary Chapel pastor who happened to be a former U of O quarterback for the Ducks. And so, you know, I'm at Red Robin and I'm kind of like in this like awesome world of like my buddy Chris over here, wide receiver. And, and then this other Calvary Chapel pastor, a Ducks quarterback. And it's like, whoa, like I must be important, you know, and all this stuff. 
And then as we walked out of lunch and we said goodbye, my friend Chris just started just grieving with sorrow because this pastor at a Calvary Chapel, actually raised up under Chuck Smith at Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa, had begun to buy into the errancy and the fallibility of the Bible. And what came from that was my friend Peter from high school going to this church instead of walking around with a Bible in his hand. Oh, that's my kid's uh, children's ministry card. If I want to get them back, I should probably take that to get them later. Uh, instead of packing a Bible around like he once did, he packed around printouts of skeptics and their contradictions that they supposedly had found within the scripture. And it wasn't long before my friend claimed himself to be an atheist. Okay? So this is important, even within the Calvary Chapel circles, even among the educated. As you go off to college, as you young ones get ready to go to school. Man, you go to Oregon State for a long time. There was a man named Marcus Borg at Oregon State University whose one desire was to disprove Christianity and cause any Christian kid that went into his class to doubt the faith. So it's important to know, why do you believe what you believe? And how do you know? What authority do you have? you got to know your Bible. you got to know where it came from. And you've got to know why it's trustworthy. Now, if we read the Bible at face value, without a preconceived bias for finding errors, we will find it to be coherent, consistent, relatively easy to understand first sense understanding it makes the best sense and that's easy to interpret and to go along with yet it doesn't mean there aren't difficult passages or passages that appear to contradict each other we're going to see in just a little bit how the bible is so different and yet is so the same and with that knowledge it's understandable that there would be some minor differences. However, difference does not mean contradiction. It's only an error if there's absolutely no conceivable way that the verses or the passages could be reconciled. All right. Now, often you'll get questions along the lines of explain how these Bible verses do not contradict. And that coworker of yours would say, look, here's an error in the Bible. Some of these questions, some of these concerns can be difficult to un understand or to answer. However, I believe, and I believe it's absolutely true and provable, that there are very intellectually plausible answers to every supposed Bible contradiction that has ever been found. And there are just as many books and websites that give good answers of integrity to any question that would ever be raised. Now, in your notes, we start out with a quote by J.C. Ryle, who is the Bishop of Liverpool. And he writes, when you are reading the Bible, you are not reading the self-taught compositions of poor, imperfect men like yourselves. You are reading the words of the eternal God. When you hear it, you're not listening to the erring opinions of short-lived mortals, but to the unchanging mind of the king of kings. Men who were employed to indict the Bible spoke not of themselves. They spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. All other books of the world, however good and useful in their way, are more or less 
defective. The more you look at them, the more you see their defects and blemishes. The Bible alone is absolutely perfect from beginning to end. It is the word of God. So that should be your first blank in your notes. Congratulations. Get get the ink flowing from your pen. The Bible alone is absolutely perfect. And so let's look today at this perfection of the scripture. Let's look today at the inerrancy of the scripture. Inerrancy speaks of the scripture being without error. You guys see it in your notes? Are you following along with me? Inerrancy speaks of the scriptures being without error. E.J. Young says, by this word, we mean that the scriptures possess the quality of freedom from error. They are exempt from the liability to mistake, incapable of error. In all their teaching, they are in perfect accord with the truth. Now, in the past, it used to be enough to just say that the Bible was inspired by God. We could get that after last week's study. Yet today, with the skeptics and the critics, it's become necessary to define the evangelical position even more specifically to that of being infallible. Infallible. You guys learning some new words today? No one's cross-eyed yet? Well, Joe, a little bit. But might just be your prescription that I'm picking up from here. But infallible speaks of incapable of failure or error just incapable of it no failure no error reading bruce milne for the first time in this study this week for me where he writes applied to scripture this word implies the quality of not misleading that's another word for you today it's not misleading us this claim means that all the bible's assertions are truthful and worthy of entire confidence implying a contrast with human fallible words and statements. To state the correct view, it's necessary to include the words, as Charles Ryrie puts in his theology book, verbal, plenary, full, infallible, inerrant, unlimited inspiration. It's just like, saying true 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 dee doo dee doo you know i mean that's how i would put it it's, it's just maybe that's just on our level we can just close today now like okay what'd you learn today true dee doo dee doo that's all i got okay it's all you need because romans chapter 3 verse 4 says that god is true and then what we studied last week and this morning the second timothy three sixteen, the scriptures are breathed out by god Therefore, the scriptures are true. Wayne Grudem, in his book Systematic Theology, we'll hear from him a bit today, writes that the inerrancy of scripture means that scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. The Bible always tells the truth. Something that I normally don't include in the notes, but I wanted you guys to have today as we go along is inerrancy as seen in the continuity of scripture. And this is 
adapted from Josh McDowell's Evidence That Demands a Verdict. The Bible is the only book that was written over about a 1,500-year span. Think about that. Moby Dick didn't take that long. <laughs> All right. Little Women takes that long to read, not that long to write. Okay. And the book that you're holding in your hand, 1,500 years of writing, written by more than 40 authors from every walk of life, written by kings, military leaders, peasants, philosophers, fishermen, tax collectors, poets, musicians, statesmen, scholars, and shepherds. Moses was a political leader and a judge trained up in the universities of Egypt. These aren't those opium users like we talked about last week. These aren't just Joe Schmoes, you know, got some weird pill from a guy on a street and just started like scribbling stuff, okay? Trustworthy men. David was a king of a nation, a poet, a musician, a shepherd, and a warrior. Amos was a herdsman. Joshua, a military general. Nehemiah was a cupbearer to a pagan king. Daniel was a prime minister. Solomon was a king and a philosopher. Luke was a physician. Peter was a fisherman. Matthew, a tax collector. Paul was a rabbi and a tent maker. Mark was Peter's secretary. It was written in different places. Moses wrote in the wilderness, Jeremiah was in a dungeon, Daniel was on a hillside in a palace, Paul was inside prison walls, Luke while traveling, John while exiled at the island of Patmos, was written at different times. Adam, I'm not sure if you've got an air conditioner key, but I'm cold and I see a lot of women with their coats on. Do you mind cranking it up a degree? Just one degree. If we go two degrees, it'll be a boiler room in here, so... Our deacon, Adam, everybody. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Adam. What he's not telling you is he doesn't have his key, and so now he's going to the lockbox to try to find it. He's a hero. Every culture needs one. It was written in different moods. Some were writing from the heights of joy, others from the depths of sorrow and despair. Some wrote during times of uncertainty and conviction, others during times of confusion and doubt. Written from three continents, Africa, Asia, Europe. Written in three uh, different languages. It was written in Hebrew. And what's important about that is Hebrew is a pictorial language in which the past is not merely described, but it's verbally painted. Not just a landscape is presented, but a moving panorama. The course of events is reenacted in the mind's sights. You read the Bible and you can note the frequent use of the word behold, which is a Hebraism carried over to the New Testament. Such common Hebraic expressions as he arose and went. He opened his lips and spoke. He lifted up his eyes and saw. And he lifted up his voice and wept. Illustrates the pictorial strength of the language, which I appreciate. Very visual guy. It was written in Aramaic, which was the common language of the Near East until the time of Alexander the Great. 
Daniel's chapter 2 through 7 and most of Ezra 4 through 7 are in Aramaic as some statements in the New Testament, like Jesus' cry from the cross, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? McDowell writes, although Aramaic is less euphonious and poetic than Hebrew, it probably is superior as a vehicle of exact expression. I like what Samuel Taylor, who was a Coleridge English poet and literary critic, I like what he says, and every time I read the Psalms, I feel like this, is, this quote comes to my mind as I read the Psalms. Samuel Taylor writes, I have found in the Bible words for my inmost thoughts, songs for my joy, utterance for my hidden griefs, and pleadings for my shame and feebleness. Man, you don't know what to say. You don't know what to think. Go to the Psalms. They'll start saying it and thinking it for you. That's, that's how I feel about the Psalms. Of course, any scripture. Then it was written in the Greek, the Greek language. The language comprising almost all of the New Testament was the international language spoken at the time of Christ. And, and that fact that it was an international language at the time of the missionary movement beginning has its own incredible relevance. Moving on, the continuity of the Bible, and that it was written in a wide variety of literary styles, including comedy. No, not really. I wish. There's a few things. I remember when my dad, my dad passed away, but I remember when he was reading Ezekiel, he's like, did you know the Lord's a comedian? And I'm like, oh, really, dad? You know? And he's like, yeah, read Ezekiel. And, and Ezekiel's supposed to lay on his side and cook it like for years. And like any food that he has, he cooks it in uh, human poo, you know? And I'm like, oh, that's disgusting. And, but <clears throat> Ezekiel's like, no, Lord, that's unclean. And the Lord's like, oh, it's a, okay, okay. Use animal poo. And he's like, okay, let's do that. And so my dad was like, that's hilarious, you know. <laughs> so maybe that is comedy. I don't know. But, but it was written in poetry. Roses are red. Violets are blue. Scooby-doo-doo. Scooby-doo. Okay. Uh, historical narrative. It was written in song and romance and didactic treatise. Personal correspondence, memoirs, satire, biography, autobiography, law, prophecy, parable, allegory. The Bible addresses hundreds of controversial subjects. Subjects that create opposing opinions when mentioned or discussed. Hundreds of hot topics are discussed like marriage, divorce, remarriage, homosexuality, adultery, obedience to authority, truth-telling, and lying, and character development, and parenting. May I add, uh, (laughs) maybe they've got the answer. (laughs) Oh, must be too controversial. I'm not supposed to. It's like totally there, and then it's like, okay. Apparently, I'm supposed to just read from my notes today. We'll just stick with that. Immigration. <gasps> They're coming to our border. It's like, hey, let's just go to the word. The word has some things to say about immigration, okay? And we can just rest in the plan of God. We can trust in God as we read these, these topics that are discussed. 
With all of these things, yet from Genesis to Revelation, these writers address them with an amazing degree of harmony. Despite its diversity, there's one single unfolding story in these 66 books. 1,500 years, three different continents, three different languages, all of these different just jobs that these guys had. What's the single story that's going through the whole thing? God's redemption of human beings through his son, Jesus Christ. That's the story in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, and Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles. You know what I mean? It's all about Jesus. Great little rapping way to memorize the books of the Bible there. And the leading character throughout all these books is the one true living God who makes himself known through his son, the God-man, Jesus Christ. This whole story that just continues is shown in the Old Testament, where the law provides the foundation for Christ. And the historical books show the preparation for Christ. And the poetic books aspire to Christ. And the prophecies expect Christ. In the New Testament, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, show the manifestation of the Christ. He has shown up. That's what manifest means. Acts shows the spread of Christ through the apostles. The whole world's got to know. The epistles show the interpretations of Christ. And the book of Revelation shows the completion of all things in Christ. From cover to cover, the Bible is Christ-centered. Although the Bible has many books by many authors, it shows in its continuity that it is also one book. I love this little story that Josh McDowell tells in Evidence That Demands a Verdict, and you can read along with me. He writes, Contrast the books of the Bible with the compilation of Western classics called The Great Books of the Western World. The Great Books contain selection from more than 450 works by close to 100 authors spanning a period of about 25 centuries. You've got Homer, donuts, no, different Homer, Plato, Aristotle, Plotinus, Augustine, Aquinas, Dante, Hobbes, not with Calvin, Spinoza, Calvin, Rousseau, Shakespeare, Hume, Cain, Darwin, Tolstoy, Whitehead, should pop it, the, and Joyce, just kidding, just to keep you going a little bit here, just to name a handful. While these individuals are all part of the Western tradition of ideas, they often display an incredible diversity of views on just about every subject. And while their views share some commonalities, they also display numerous conflicting and contradictory positions and perspectives. In fact, they frequently go out of their way to critique and refute key ideas proposed by their predecessors. A representative of the great books of the Western world came to my house one day, attempting to recruit salesmen for the service. He spread out a chart describing the series and spent five minutes talking to my wife and me about it. We then spent an hour and a half talking to him about the Bible, 
which we presented as the greatest book of all time. I challenged this representative to take just 10 of the authors from the great book series, all from one walk of life, one generation, one place, one time, one mood, one continent, one language, and all addressing just one controversial subject. I then asked him, would the authors agree with one another? He paused and then replied, no. What would you have then, I asked. Immediately, he answered and said, a conglomeration. Two days later, he committed his life to Christ. So do you see how the continuity of the scriptures, 66 books, 27 in the new, after Jesus's time, 40 different authors, all of these different ways of life, three different continents, three different languages, all of these different subjects, all harmonizing with one another, all telling the great story of God's redeeming sinners to himself through the life and death of his son, Jesus. It points to how special, how unique, and how authoritative the Bible is. I know what you're thinking. Inerrancy. Wow. Tell me more, right? I can hear it. I feel it in the room. It's the vibe I'm picking up. Okay. Here's some more about inerrancy. Inerrancy does not demand stiffness of style and word-for-word -word quotations from the Old Testament. Okay? So when you read the New Testament and there's an Old Testament passage quoted and you go back and you read it in the Old Testament and it's not word-for-word -word quoting, that can often be like a... <gasps> in people that are, you know, holding to inerrancy. Inerrancy does not demand word-for-word -word reporting of events. In ancient times, it was not the practice to give word-for-word -word quotations every time something was written out. Scripture scrolls were huge and not readily available. Hence, there's freedom in the Old Testament quotes. Loose or free quotations are acceptable. Written Greek at New Testament times didn't have quotation marks or equivalent types of punctuation. The writer did not ordinarily imply that he was using the exact words of the speaker, nor did the hearers expect verbatim quotations in such reporting. Second thing about inerrancy is that it means simply that the Bible tells the truth. Charles Ryrie writes, truth can and does include approximations, free quotations, language of appearances, and different accounts of the same event as long as those do not contradict. So the Bible can be inerrant and still speak in the ordinary language of everyday speech. The Bible uses ordinary language to describe natural phenomena or to give approximations or round numbers when those are appropriate to the context. To the observer, the sun rises and the rain falls. Okay, We know that the sun doesn't rise you know but that there's spinning going on and yet we read of joshua that the sun stood still in the sky okay that wasn't an inerrant observation 
that was written down by Joshua? What about when we come to places in the Bible where there's number differences? Well, over here it says there were this many people, places, or things, and over here it was this many people, places, or things. A reporter can say that 8,000 men were killed without implying that he has counted every single one of them and that there were not 7,999 or 8,001 dead soldiers. If roughly 8,000 died, it would of course be false to say that 16,000 died, but it would not be false in most contexts uh, for a reporter to say that 8,000 men died when in fact 7,823 or 8,101 died. Now listen to what Grudem says. The limits of truthfulness would depend on the degree of precision implied by the speaker and expected by his original hearers. Okay? So inerrancy speaks of truthfulness, not to the degree of precision with which events are reported, all right? Now, back in 1978, there was the International Council on Biblical Inerrancy in Chicago, and here is what their conclusion was. Being holy and verbally God-given, Scripture is without error or fault in all its teachings. No less in what it states about God's act in creation, about the events of world history, and about its own literary origins under God, than in its witness to God's saving grace in individual lives. Okay? As we move on, inerrancy extends to the original manuscripts. Okay? So we really rest our position of inerrancy or infallibility not so much on a 2018 copy of the message paraphrase by Eugene Peterson, which, by the way, I'm not a fan of. That's a whole other school of ministry topic. Nor the 2014 NIV translation, but we rest in the original manuscripts. Okay, being uh, inerrant. All right, so with that being said, the Moody Handbook of Theology tells us that when all the facts are known, the scriptures in their original autographs and properly interpreted will be shown to be wholly true in everything they teach, whether that teaching has to do with doctrine history, science, geography, geology, or other disciplines or knowledge. So when science may seem to point to something else, we Christians still believe the scriptures, knowing that when all is said or done, the scriptures will be found to be true, okay? Listen to what A.W. Pink says in his book, Gleanings in Genesis. I think you've got it in your notes. The faith of the Christian rests not in the wisdom of man, nor does it stand in any need of buttressing from scientific salvos. 
The faith of the Christian rests upon the impregnable rock of Holy Scripture, and we need nothing more. The question is, do you believe that? Do you believe that in this day and age that says that truth is relative? Do you have a solid rock on which you stand? Is God's word sufficient for you in and of itself? Pink goes on to say, too often Christian apologists desert their proper ground. For instance, one of the ancient tablets of Assyria is deciphered and that it is triumphantly announced that some statements found in the historical portion of the Old Testament have been confirmed. But that is only a turning of things upside down again. The word of God needs no confirming. If the writing upon an Assyrian tablet agrees with what was recorded in Scripture, that confirmed the historical accuracy of the Assyrian tablet. If it disagrees... That is proof positive that the Assyrian writer was at fault. In like manner, if the teachings of science square with Scripture, that goes to show the, show the former are correct. If they conflict, it proves the postulates of science are false. The man of the world and the pseudoscientists may sneer at our logic, but that only demonstrates the truth of God's word which declares that the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to them. Neither can they know them because they are spiritually discerned. Okay, so we rest in the Bible. We trust the Bible. Now, might some new fact of science or archaeology ever contradict the Bible? we can say with confidence that this will never happen. It's impossible. If this fact is ever discovered, it is the fact that is false. If we'd understood the scripture rightly, God, the writer of scripture, knows all the true facts. And we should never fear when new facts come up, but we should welcome any new facts. Because no true fact will ever contradict the words of the God who knows all of the facts and never lies. In your notes, the very nature of God is at stake here. To assume that there are errors in his word is to assume that God cannot operate without error. A couple more things about inerrancy. Inerrancy allows for a variety in style. The Gospel of John is of the style of an unlearned fisherman, while Luke sounds like a physician wrote it, because one did. Paul's epistles have the logic of a philosopher. So, there's different styles when you read the Bible. Inerrancy allows for a variety of details explaining the same events. And we see this a lot as we read the very similar Gospels. It's important to remember that Jesus spoke in Aramaic and the writers of the scripture wrote their account in Greek, meaning that they had to translate the original words into Greek. One writer would use slightly different words to describe the same incident. 
yet both would give the same meaning with different words. And there's other reasons for variety and detail. Kind of think of a parade here. One writer may have viewed the event from one standpoint in the parade, while the other viewed it from a different standpoint, okay? So at the beginning of the parade, there's a guy standing on the north side of the city block, and at that point, you know, there's a big balloon that comes by, and there's gymnasts and baton, twirler, baton twirlers, or baton twirlers, whatever, you know? And as the hour goes on, and the bands go through, and the parade goes on, you know, one of the, one of the balloons snags on a tree branch and deflates, and... <laughs> You know, and they got to like get the canvas off the road. And so by the time the man is writing and reporting on the event from the south end of the street, seven blocks later, he doesn't see anything of a Woody Woodpecker balloon coming down. That guy at the beginning is always lying to us, you know, and there's just different perspectives of the same event, you know, as the cheerleader is tossed up in the air and the catchers don't catch and she's rushed off in an ambulance. And all of a sudden there's not the twirling girl at the end of the parade. What happened? There's different perspectives. Or one man, you know, who was raised on a cattle ranch, and he's at the parade, and he sees the horses come through, and the sheriff is on him, and he loves the the ivory-plated pistols, and he's writing about that, and he mostly just writes about the dude on the horse. Where the other guy, you know, he's from, you know, the city, and he loves the marching band, and the pomp, and the circumstance, and the brass band, and, and he puts more emphasis on that. Different standpoints, a different take on the parade, seen by different people, viewing different objects. And it doesn't mean that either of the accounts are false. Moving right along, inerrancy allows for the departure from standard forms of grammar. Let's eat, Grandpa. Or, let's eat, Grandpa. Correct punctuation can save a person's life. English grammar is, thought you'd like that, David. Okay. English grammar is not the same as Greek, Hebrew, or Aramaic. It is consistent with inerrancy to have unusual or uncommon grammatical construction in the Bible. A statement can be ungrammatical and yet be entirely true. Grudem says, an uneducated backwoodsman in some rural area may be the most trusted man in the county even though his grammar is poor because he's earned a reputation for never telling a lie. He don't talk good, but he tells the truth. The issue here is truthfulness in speech. Remember, if all you walk away with is truth, truth, truthy, truth, truth, boom. You've described the Bible, okay? It's impossible to provide solutions to all the problems. In some case, the solution awaits an archaeological find or a linguist's research, or in some cases, we may never find out till we get to the kingdom of heaven. Reading of Bruce Milne again, the infallibility of Scripture refers to its message viewed as a whole. This is not to imply that specific passages and texts are not infallible, but rather that each particular statement and section is infallible within the context of the whole of Scripture. What do you mean by that, Rory? Well, if, for example, we quote in isolation James' question, 
can faith save him? With its implied answer of no, we may miss the infallible truth of God in the letter of James. That is attained only when the statement in James is read within the total framework of the letter and, apparently I didn't write the rest of it in there, and Paul's writings in Romans and Galatians, okay? The infallibility of scripture is bound up with the intention and the mind of the author. What do you mean by that? The opening chapter of Genesis, for example, is infallible in teaching the construction of the physical universe in six 24-hour days only if that precise cosmological, cosmological scientific sense was intended by the writer. If that was not his intentions, the infallibility of his count must not be pressed into the cosmological details. Or a narrative may patently be just the literary vehicle for the theological truths. An obvious example is Jesus' parables. Okay? A couple more things from Milne here. The literary form of a passage will thus also affect how we assert its infallibility. Hence, the infallibility does not attach to every human effort to interpret the Bible. Not every human interpretation of a passage of Scripture or of the Bible as a whole is infallible. For instance, when I come up here and preach, I'm not inerrant and I'm not infallible as I have worked to interpret the Scripture and expound it to you. That is why you guys have your Bibles open and search what I preach to see if these things are true. The answer to this is never suggest, and this is in your notes, Never suggest that there are errors or contradictions in Scripture. If the Scriptures are God-breathed, then they are entirely without error. Well, some would say there are some clear errors in the Bible. And Grudem would say, no, there aren't. All can be resolved by a deep look at the text and the original language. Inerrancy demands the account does not teach error or contradictions. We're going to skip some more Milne there. And uh, although, catch that Westminster Confession paragraph. The Westminster Confession expresses this appropriately. The supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined and in whose sentence we are to rest can be none other than the Holy Spirit speaking in the scripture. So when we have conflict within the various religions or within even our own faith, we go to the scripture to be the right judge. As Calvin says, scripture may therefore be, therefore be thought of as the scepter of God. Details may vary, but it still reflects things as they are. Now, what are some problems with rejecting inerrancy? First of all, errantists believe that errors can still teach truth. If the Bible cannot be trusted in chronology, history, and geography, then it can't be trusted in the message of salvation. Errancy attacks the character of God. If the scriptures contain errors, then God erred. The third thing is, errantists disagree on listing errors. They each have their own list of errors that differ from one another. So who decides what is error and what isn't? If we deny inerrancy, a serious moral problem confronts us. 
May we imitate God and intentionally lie in small matters also. Fifth, if inerrancy is denied, we begin to wonder if we can really trust God in anything he says. A decline in trust and obedience will follow those who hold to errant scriptures. If we deny inerrancy, we essentially make our own human minds a higher standard of God's truth than God's word itself. This is at the root of all intellectual sin. Okay, as we begin to wrap up, this is one of my favorite parts of it all. So, you know, bite your cheek or something to wake up or slap yourself or, you know, fan, fan yourself with your Bible. But I love looking at what Robert Dick Wilson has to say to us on how accurate our copies are, okay? Now, Robert Dick Wilson, let me just tell you a little bit about him. Wilson taught at Princeton Theological Seminary as head of Semitic languages. He could read and write 45 ancient Semitic languages. Now, maybe there's one of us in this room that can read and write one but I doubt it, okay? This is one dude. At the age of 25, he could read the New Testament in nine languages, and he had the New Testament memorized in Hebrew. Wilson could quote Matthew through Revelation every syllable without missing a beat and also had many Old Testament books memorized as well, okay? So, that's the caliber of man that is a help on this subject for us today. And here's what he has to say. For 45 years continuously, I have devoted myself to one great study of the Old Testament. In all of its languages, in all of its archaeology, in all of its translations, the critics of the Bible who go to it in order to find fault claim for themselves all knowledge, all virtue, all love of the truth. One of their favorite phrases is, all scholars agree. Well, when a man says that, I wish to know who the scholars are and what they agree on. Where do they get their evidence? I defy any man to make an attack on the Old Testament on the grounds of evidence that I cannot investigate. After I learned the necessary languages, I set about the investigation of every single consonant in the Hebrew Old Testament. When was the last time anyone here did that? Every con First of all, what's a consonant, right? Okay. And he says, hey, by the way, there are about 1,250,000 of them, just in case you're wondering. It took me many years to achieve my task. I had to observe variations in the texts, texts in the manuscripts, notes of the Masoretes, various versions, parallel passages, and the conjectural emendations of critics. Then I had to classify the results of every character, every consonant, to reduce the Old Testament criticism to an absolutely objective science, something which is based on evidence and not opinion. The result of those 45 years of study which I have given to the text has been this. Are you ready for it? I can affirm that there is not a page of the Old Testament concerning which you need have any doubt. He went on to say, 
I have come to the conviction that no man knows enough to attack the veracity of the Old Testament. Every time when anyone has been able to get together enough documentary, quote-unquote, proofs to undertake an investigation, the biblical facts in the original text have victoriously met the test. Oswald T. Allis, uh, a contemporary of Robert Dick Wilson's, described Robert Wilson's approach on his study of the Bible. I don't believe this is in your notes, but this is his approach to study in the Bible. Build solidly prepare thoroughly, never be satisfied with superficial answers. God's word can stand the most thorough investigation. Do not shirk the difficult problems, but seek to find the facts to light. Bring the facts to light. For God's word and God's world will never contradict one another. Let's hear just a little more. He goes on to explain. You have this in your notes. There are 29 ancient kings whose names are mentioned, not only in the Bible, but also on monuments we've uncovered of their own time. Uh, And if you've heard me talk quite a bit about Pontius Pilate's seat plate that was found in the theater at Caesarea that proved there really was a Pontius Pilate when the skeptics said, there's not even a Pontius Pilate in the Bible talks about, you know, and then the name was found there in Caesarea on his seat in this theater. So 29 ancient kings whose names are not only mentioned in the Bible, but also found in archaeological monuments. There are 195 consonants in the names. There are only two consonants that have ever come into question, but it turns out they are all the exact way they appear on the monuments, which have been unearthed. Some of these are 4,000 years old, but appear exactly as they do on the manuscripts. So that's from the Bible. Everything is how it appears as it's dug up in these archaeological digs. Compare this to the greatest scholar of his day, the librarian at the biggest library of his day in Alexandria, Egypt, in 200 BC. This librarian compiles a catalog of all the kings of Egypt. There's 38 in all, and of the entire number, only three or four of those names are recognizable. He also made a compilation of the kings of Assyria. In this case, only one name is recognizable, and that one is not even spelled correctly. That's a librarian for you. I know some of you are like guffawing right now, but most aren't because library, right? Okay, Ptolemy or Ptolemy or however you say it. He drew up a registry of 18 kings of Babylon, and yet not one of them is properly spelled, and you cannot make them out at all. You wouldn't even know who they were if you didn't know some of the outside sources. If anyone questions the Bible, have him check out the 29 kings, their countries, and the chronicle order. All are given perfectly. There's a great YouTube video that we don't have time to go into today. It's John Piper as he talks about contextual criticism. And let me just see if I can break down the facts as the worship team comes up. And that's just your little cue like, it's almost over, praise God. Okay, but just chill. Okay, that's all I got to say. Piper helps us with his great video on the science of contextual criticism. Where at the upper levels, where you're trying to figure out what is credible and what is not credible... 
You not only have to have a knowledge of Greek and Hebrew, but you've got to have a way to read them in the, in the handwritings of that day. So think of how hard it is to write like our nation's fathers. Like have you ever tried to, to read, you know, George Washington or John Adams like letters, you know, very different. So imagine going back thousands of years and reading ancient Greek, you know, in their handwriting of that day. Okay, so you've got to be able to do that, first of all. And then you've got to go to a library where you find these things are even preserved so that you can read them. So we just praise the Lord as Christians today that are holding Bibles in our hands, that we have these Bibles in our own language today. I mean, the first Bible rolled off the printing press in 1516. It totally turned the world upside down. That men and women can read the Bible for themselves. Oh, I don't have time to get into it, but let me just summarize this. When you look at the different way the manuscripts are recorded, when you study ancient manuscripts, Sometimes you'll have two manuscripts or eight manuscripts or 20 manuscripts of the ancient writers that are not from the Bible, okay? Like the Homers, right? Sometimes you'll have two manuscripts that you could reference. And the beautiful thing about the way that the Lord has provided the scripture is that we have over 5,800 whole or fragments just of the New Testament that we can go to and find out their inerrancy and how reliable those originals are. What does that mean for us? What does that mean we're holding in our hand? Well, if the Bible is God-breathed, it's the breath of God, a whole nother school of ministry class to talk about the translation that you pick to read because there are some that are as literal as they can be when they write them down for you then there's some that are paraphrases just to get the the point across to you but as you do your study you know my endeavor is to be as accurate as i can as i study to preach the word to you i not only use my version i look at all the versions and i try to see what the differences might be and i go back to the historical understanding of what we're reading so we want to be as accurate as we can but we can trust the originals, as Robert Dick Wilson said, there is not a page of this book that you need to have any doubt about. So what do we do with that? Is it important to read the Bible? Is it important to study the Bible? Is it important to go to a church that preaches the Bible, that values the Bible? What happens to a culture or a church or an individual or a family or a nation that disregards the Bible? In a week, we're going to see that we utterly become corrupt and unuseful for the work of God. If anything, we are a detriment to the work of God. And as Paul tells Timothy in verse 15 of our text, 2 Timothy chapter 3.15, he says to young Timothy, but you must continue in the things that you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them. For all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. Next week we'll see what's it profitable for. Why don't we set our things aside? A.W. Tozer said, 
Nothing less than a whole Bible can make a whole Christian. And so as we just prepare our hearts to close this morning, some of us have greatly, and may I say gravely, neglected the reading, the studying, the sitting under preachers, the reading to your family. You've greatly and gravely neglected the Bible in your life in those ways. I'm so glad you're here today that the Lord could bring conviction to you upon that neglect as the word is used in Hebrews chapter 10. Because as you've neglected, you may very well be leading yourself or your families into the path of hell and working upon them practices and habits that disregard the word of God. That at a moment's time, as is the case with my friend Peter, another man, another woman will come along And because you or your wife or your child have itching ears to just hear something that tickles them rather than that tells the truth to them, they will be drawn away by their own desires and enticed. Charles Spurgeon said, I fear that you have enough dust on your Bibles to write the letters H-E. And so today is a day of not only instruction, Bible college, today is a day of preaching, where you are called to repent, and I am called to repent, wherever our view of Scripture is shown to be haphazard, lackadaisical, careless. That the Lord would correct us today, put in us a holy terror, and put in us a holy appreciation that the God that created the universe saw fit to reveal himself to us in a way that could be written down and preserved that as 5,000 years goes by, we still have it and he's still speaking to us today. We can know him. We can know his character. We can know his heart for us. We can know how we stand before him as sinners who've rejected him and rebelled against him. But we can know that he didn't just reject us as sinners, but he pursued us and he loved us with such a great love that while we were at war with him, he died for us on the cross to forgive us of our sins and to purge us from every wicked work we've ever done so that we could stand before the righteous judge of heaven just as if we've never sinned. And so today, as you got a lot of heady head knowledge, boil it down to truth. 
He's the God of truth who's revealed himself in truth through the writings of the Bible, which are truth. He is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. And no man comes to the Father but by him.